0: welcome back into the mental game where this week's guest is former nfl star nate burleson i
1: i always use words that are affectionate i say i appreciate you a lot because i truly do appreciate people i tell men that i love them yeah. because we don't hear that often mm-hmm. i tell men that i'm proud of them because we don't hear that often.
0: And in this episode, Nate opens up about his NFL career, which lasted 11 seasons playing wide receiver. We talk about the ups and downs of injuries, winning and losing, and then his career off the field as an analyst for the NFL on CBS, and now his big job co hosting CBS Mornings, all that and much, much more, including mental health and his personal battle with depression as he tries to break the stigma surrounding men's mental health. But before we get started, I just want to say thank you again. And if you're loving The Mental Game, please like, subscribe, rate, review, tell your family, tell your friends as we try to help as many people as possible with their mental health. But now it is time for the latest edition here on The Mental Game with Nate Burleson. Welcome back into The Mental Game. As you can tell, a very special guest sitting next to me today. It is Nate Burleson. Host of CBS Mornings, NFL Today, and former NFL star Nate, I appreciate you joining me. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Yeah, I uh, suited up here because I saw you—you uh, coming directly from from work. So from I, work. I, I dressed <laughs> down after work,
1: and I see you dressed up. You got the blazer, the fresh
0: kicks. Yeah, I tried to tried yeah. to match it. You're probably one of, if not the best dressed man oh, thanks, on TV. Man. So thanks. I had to match that. it. I I think I can kind of take the win. The shoes yeah, are better yeah, than you, mine. That's yeah, yeah. I got you on the kicks. <laughs> yeah. I'm a sneakerhead. Though. Yeah. I know your closet at home is crazy. Yeah, yeah. I love <laughs> I love
1: sneakers, man.
0: Well, I've uh, been a big fan of, of you watching your career develop from from the field to the studio and now taking on as the host of CBS Morning. It's been special watching your career and obviously you. your openness about mental health is a big reason why I asked out or asked you to come out on the show. You can um, ask me
1: out too if you want, no, cool. <laughs> Yeah, that's
0: fine, we'll sit. Uh, we got some coffee after okay, this breakfast, cool. I still haven't ate. <laughs> um, that was good. Uh, first thing I ask everyone on the mental game is what does mental health mean to them? And everyone answers it differently, whether it's something they've always taken care of, maybe there was a traumatic event that forced them to think about their mental health more, but actually the same thing, what does mental health mean to you? First, let me say I appreciate
1: you having me on um, and thank you for creating a platform and then using this platform mm-hmm. Um, to help, you know, the human race, because really yeah. this is something that we have all struggled with. Uh, but, you know for me, mental health is something that I discovered a little later in life. Um, it wasn't anything that was taboo growing up. I had a mother and father in the home, grew up, four boys in a house. yeah, um but it just wasn't the daily discussion. Um, we didn't have these moments where we would, tap in at night and ask each other about how we're doing mentally. How's your day? Mm-hmm. How's school? Right. How's sports? Mom and dad, how's work? But not how are you doing mentally? Um, which is why I kind of changed my approach with how I parent, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, but as far as figuring out what mental health was once I got into my late 20s, I believe it's, it's fitness of the mind. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's helping us all create this clarity, with elasticity Mm -hmm. and and by that i mean being able to kind of expand and shrink our mind to deal with larger and smaller issues Mm -hmm. because what happens is as we get older issues become bigger and we don't realize that we don't have the capacity to deal with these issues so yeah it's just training the mind and and the, the reason why i use fitness of the mind, training of the mind, clarity and elasticity um, because it's fluid. Right. I, I, I don't like coming in and saying, well, mental health is about being tough and mm-hmm. you know s- the, the solidness of how you deal with issues. And, yeah. Because it's not true. Because it, there's moments where, yes, we might be tough, but then there's also moments where we might be weak right. and we might be fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, so understanding that fragility allows us to, to be more pliable in moments where we might need to.
0: For you, uh, was the dream always NFL? I know you're from Canada, correct? Born in Canada, raised in Seattle, yeah. Gotcha, so the dream had to be always playing in the NFL? Well,
1: when you look at old videos of mine, when I'm running around with my brothers, I'd be yelling that I'll be in the NBA one day or the <laughs> NFL, but I was just like any other kid that yeah. loved sports. No different, I wasn't a superstar athlete. So when you saw me, you didn't think, Oh, that kid's going to be a professional athlete. Yeah. Um. To be honest, my dream was to be um, an artist. Really? Right? Okay. I I grew up painting and drawing, and you know, I would enter competitions, and I thought that I'd be traveling the world, either uh, painting, drawing, mm-hmm. or reciting poetry. And then one day, I'm chored. I got a little taller, started to run faster, jump yeah. higher, and I <laughs> realized, <this> thing out. <laughs> yeah. And, and I figured, I figured that sports could be a vehicle for all of these um, things that I love. Yeah. And and I and I and I knew if I could ride this out and then get off on this athletic train at a stop that allows me to live the rest of my life, that's what I'll do. So yeah, it wasn't. Playing in the league wasn't the goal. Even so much so when I was in college, I remember playing my first couple of years, having decent numbers, and then my junior year, getting a knock on the door, and it was an agent. And he's like, "Hey, what's up, man?" And I'm like, "You tell me. What are you doing?" <laughs> yeah, here? Well, yeah. He's like, "Well, listen, um, I'm really not supposed to be here, but I think you have a chance to be in the NFL." It was like something out of a movie. Yeah, you know, I wasn't the guy on campus with a fancy car and a chain around my neck. Yeah, um, I was the guy on campus just trying to get through every day of school. And once that guy knocked on my door, I realized, oh, the NFL is around the corner and I could possibly wow. play for a year or two. And I yeah. ended
0: up playing 11. That's incredible to think of like that moment you realizing that you had that opportunity mm. because a lot of kids obviously dream of playing in the NFL, NBA, MLB, and that's like number one on their mind the right. whole time. But it seems like that, that wasn't number one until – what junior year of college when you get that knock right
1: and it, and it wasn't there were people that might tell you differently they might say well I saw Nate at his freshman year and I knew he had skills or yeah. a coach that says they saw something in me but I just thought life was so much bigger than sports even when I played I would fly myself to LA I would work local national news. I would do radio shows. It was like I was sharpening all these tools in the media space. And then I was opening um, clothing lines, launching them. I was the owner of an Italian restaurant. So I had all these different interests. And back in 03, when I came in, um, and of course, years before that, there wasn't this embrace of athletes being more than that. Right. You know, it was like, yo, if you play ball, just play ball, right? Like I don't, I don't want to hear you recite poetry, or, or I don't want to see you serving food in the restaurant. Yeah, like, like just do what we paid you to do. Now it's different though. Yeah, every athlete has a brand outside of the yep. game, and that's the way it should be. I mm-hmm. mean, um, it also allows athletes to decompress in
0: ways that they love and things yeah. that they want to do. For you, uh, draft day, when oh, you, yeah. when you, when you get there, and it was it was the third round,
1: third round draft pick to the Minnesota Vikings.
0: Yeah, when you get that that call. Walk me through that moment, because that new dream for you yeah. becomes a reality. And like you said, eh, maybe a couple of years, you end up playing 11 and having a pretty successful career in the NFL. What was that moment like for you? Yeah, the the
1: Minnesota Vikings, they called me third round. I'm sitting there with my mom, my dad. I didn't have one one other like friend or family member oh, outside wow. of my immediate circle there. It was just people that I loved. And um, once I got that call, I realized that this is going to be the beginning of the rest of my life. And that's how most athletes think. You know, it's the logo on your helmet, the colors on your jersey, I'll bleed, I'll die for this, I'll run through a brick wall for this team. Yeah. And I got to the team and I I, I saw every player in that locker room with the same mindset, mm-hmm. some even more athletic than me. And we all came from A school where we were the man. Right. Previous to that, kicking butt in high school. Some of us really great in elementary school. So for me, I didn't see myself as the most confident guy, even though my stats read differently. When I got there, I felt like a little boy again that was playing amongst men, trying to prove my place every day at practice. Yeah. And I think that, like, that humility and that fear, it, it allowed me to stay 11 years mm-hmm. because every moment was a moment for me. You know, right. when I would wake up and, you know, I, I came in so long ago. We would have paper checks on our lockers, sitting on our stool, sound yeah. <laughs> open, which is crazy because uh, <laughs> guys would open up their check and you'd be peeking to see who's making what. Um, but like, you know, I would I would get that check and I would just do this happy dance and I would think to myself, I can't believe they're paying me this. And I yeah. said that for 11 years. I can't believe they're paying me this money to play a sport that I used to play at recess for free. Right. Um, not saying that, you know, later on in my career, I didn't
0: feel like I deserved that
1: money. Right. But I just, I was deeply appreciative
0: of it. Yeah, and, and you get 11 years playing in the league. Um, you bounced around a little bit. Yep. You're yep. with the Vikings in Seattle, yep. then Lions. Yep. And the the, the injuries, I want to get into that because mm. a lot of football players deal with that every single level, whether you're in the NFL, college, high school, even down to youth football. Yeah. Um, That seemed like it's natural to do this, but the injuries played a big part in some of your, I don't know if it was anxiety, depression, but it damaged your mental health because you think you're going to have a couple great seasons here when they both happened. You tore your ACL. You also broke your arm in a car accident. But those injuries, what did those do to you mentally?
1: They they tore away at um, this confidence, Mm -hmm. this bravado, this uh, shell of an ego that I created around me. You know, up until that point, I think I've had, you know, two bee stings and a twisted ankle. Like yeah. there was nothing like serious that I ever had to deal with. Right. And um, and, and I had a, I had a few injuries in college, but I bounced through them. I had like right. some separated shoulders, um, one concussion, but nothing that ever took me out of the game. It right. was always something that I bounced back from, which also gave me this uh this false sense of um. Superheroism, yeah. Where I thought I can always recover quicker than the average man. Right. And then I remember tearing my ACL after my first game. Um, it was the Seahawks versus the Bills. And I scored a touchdown in that game. So I'm thinking in my head, this is going to be the best season ever. Like, if you score... A touchdown in the first half of the first game. Yeah, you're rolling, baby. I'm, exactly. You know. Come on, man. You know, ball. I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to score 16, 17 touchdowns this year, and this is going to be my Pro Bowl year. About to make I'm, some money. I'm, oh, my goodness. I'm going to hold this team hostage, and they're going to have to pay me. I tweak my knee um, shortly after I score my first touchdown. I go to a sideline. At this point, I got adrenaline running through my body. I know something's wrong. The trainer's like, yo, just chill out. Yeah, Let's go into halftime and look at it. Like I go into halftime, and my calf starts cramping up, my quad. Everything around my knee started mm-hmm. cramping up, which, you know, now I know is my body signaling. Like, hey, yo, something's wrong. Right. You know, Your alert, body knows alert. best. Yes, SOS. I tell the trainer, no, I got it. I go <laughs> back out on that field. Third quarter comes around. Matt Hasselbeck is my quarterback. He's looking at me in the slot, and I have this option route where I can go in, sit, out. The DB, already got him fooled. He's already at me because I scored. Mm-hmm. I'm about to give him a move. Go out, hit the sideline, score, do my little dance. That's two <laughs> touchdowns, first game. Got it all planned out. But because my knee was fragile, and what I didn't realize, I partially had tore my ACL earlier in the game, mm-hmm. and I should have just set out. I go, and I run, and I plant. Boom. And my knee just does this, like, wiggle. And I crumble to the ground. I'm sitting there like, what's going on? So the trainers come over and I'm just grabbing at my knee. It wasn't really painful though. Interesting. And, they're, and they're like, whoa, what happened? I'm like, I don't know, y'all tell me, who yeah. tackled me? Yeah. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, who clipped me? Like, why didn't they throw the flag? The guy hit me, right? When I broke out, he tripped me, right? And they're like, no, nobody was near you. I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, your knee just gave out. I'm like, what? So I get to the sideline, still just like idiotically bouncing up and down, telling them I could play, jogging. And they're like, Nate, you're done. Like, right.
0: You don't realize what just happened yeah
1: you're like you're done so um uh, i go in there they check my knee how does it feel does it hurt and i'm telling them it doesn't we get on the plane take this long trip from buffalo to seattle mm-hmm. by the time i land it's the size of a grapefruit yeah and um we go in the next morning and i walk into where the trainers and the doctors were and it was like somebody's dog died like i i will never forget that feeling and like a few of them wouldn't even look me in my eye mm-hmm. because they felt like they let me down. And they looked at me and said, "You know, we should have kept you out the game. We misdiagnosed you, we apologize. And I was like, no, no, no. I forced my way back on the field. Um, and they said, it's it's a completely torn ACL. You're gonna miss the rest of the year. First major injury of my life. So initially, cockiness, it it it, it rolls over you and I'm like, oh, I'll be all right, I'm young. Yeah. You know, guys have bounced back from this. I'm still getting paid, I'm good. Yeah. And then you have to figure out where you're having the surgery. Go to Alabama. Now, completely removed from my family and my teammates. And this is where mental health starts to play a role. Going through the prehab, the actual procedure of getting my ACL repaired, and then sitting in that hotel room, listening to my team play on the radio because I'm in Alabama. They don't have live Seahawks games. Right. So it's like old school. And I so desperately wanted them to say my name. It's like, I hope they say like, we miss Nate Burleson or I wish he was out here on the field or I can't wait to have him back. Yeah. They didn't, just next guy up. Right. Um, and that's when I realized this game is going to move on without you. Mm-hmm. It has before, it is now, and it will after. And it parallel society. We can't get so caught up in a moment yeah. that it defines us. Because life is going to keep moving. And I remember sitting in that room, um, my hotel room, and having my pain pills, with my antibiotics. And I remember the doctor was like, all right, you can't drink for like a week. And after a week, still have my pain pills and I would go do my training, my rehab, come back to the hotel. And I remember I got a, a vodka soda, vodka cranberry. And I'm sipping that with the pain pill. Next day I go, I'm like, just make it a double. Make it a double, sipping that. Third day, I'm like, yo, just fill the the plastic cup up. Give you a big tip. Go back to my room. By like the weekend, I walk up to him with a hundred dollars. I'm like, yo, just, hey, just send a bottle up to my room. And I remember one night before the game, I'm sitting there fully clothed after training and you know, I pop my pain, relie- my pain pills, and I'm just kind of zoning out, thinking about my career, and everything is just running through my head. Am I going to be as fast as I was? Am I going to jump as high? Am I going to be as explosive? What about the money I wasted? Am I ever going to make that type of money again? Is this the end of my career? Is this the last time I'm going to play football? And, you know, I'm sipping straight out the bottle, just like yeah. old school, partying like some frat boy. <laughs> yeah, And um, I wake up fully clothed on top of my bed. Um, And it was almost like I was like popping up out of a casket. Like I I open my eyes and I kind of lean up and I look at myself. I'm like, I didn't even take my clothes off. And I'm sitting there, look at this bottle on the counter, pour it out, put it in the trash. I'm like, here's the moment. This is the moment. I could either dig deeper and go into this abyss of this depression, the unknown, the anxiety, um, all these things that are really overwhelming me right now, or I can try to create change, a shift inside mm-hmm. of me, and really force myself to be better than I was when I got injured. And that's what I did. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be that case. Yeah. Because they say, oh, well, if you tear your ACL, that knee's going to come back stronger than ever. It'll be stronger than your other one. So I was like, I'm gonna be that guy. Yeah. I'm gonna be the guy they talk about. I'm gonna be the guy that my doctor references when they're like, hey, yo, I got a case that you can look at, follow his rehab and you'll be back stronger. So that was the moment where I realized mental health is real and it's so tangible that um,
0: either you can grab it and throw it away or mm-hmm. it can grab you and throw you away. That moment seems like one of the most, if not the most defining moment for sure, in your life because for someone like me, I, I used alcohol for a long time to cover it up. Even when I was very successful as a sports supporter, I, you know, I checked myself into a mental health hospital was still drinking after my therapist told me for two years, you have to stop drinking, start taking this medicine. It's going to help you. And I said, I can't take it because I can't quit drinking. Mm. Um, started taking it was drinking too. I, uh, I think I'm about to hit five months sober here in, in a couple of weeks. Nice. So congrats, man. Thanks. Yeah. I just, but you know that when you're in that depression, you just you have tunnel vision and you can't For see sure. anything else how how did you snap out of that and realize when you woke up that was just like holy shit i don't want to i don't want to live like this
1: yeah it it was it was that moment but then after that there's these steps you have to take and and it's it was a long journey because you have to you have to figure out like what feeds into your mind body and soul in mm-hmm. the most positive of ways and and what pulls from your mind body and soul uh, so now at 41, I under I look at it like plugging into something. Yeah. Because you know, being busy, living life, you become depleted. You, you check your your life battery, and you're like, damn, how am I just every day 25? percent I can't get to 100. And then you have to figure out, well, what am I plugging into? Right. And what is pulling energy out of me? For me, it's family. Like one thing that will always take me to 100% immediately is enjoying new experiences at new locations with my family. And I don't mean some exotic vacation, it could just be yeah. a new restaurant, new food, new thing, new drive. Just new moments visuals. together. Yes, moments together with my family. Um, and then almost the complete opposite of that, another thing that feeds into my mind, body and soul is um, solitude. I like being alone. Now I can entertain. Yeah, I'm a Leo. I love the stage. You me know what too, I'm saying? Yeah. I walk into a party. I'm gonna grab the room like that. Yep. Somebody's like story time, Nate. I'll have 50 people huddled up like you know a football game. You and I have the same page right? on that, right? But but I I realize at this age though, I also like peace and quiet. Yeah, doing exactly what I want to do. It could be completely nothing. It could be watching a movie I've seen a hundred times. Mm-hmm. It could be listening to old songs and make me feel a certain type of way. It could be sitting back, staring at the wall but just me being by myself. And I felt bad about that, being a father and being a husband. Yeah. Until I realized like, nah, that's what I need. And it's okay that I need that. And my family understands that. Sometimes I'll come home and I'll just sit and chill, unplug, decompress, and mm-hmm. unpack everything that's going on. Um, and then on the flip side, like what are the things that pull out of you? That's stress, the anxiety of not knowing. Yeah. Like. There's people that plan two weeks, two months, two years out. That ain't me. I'm <laughs> yeah, sorry, no. I, I'm not that. I'm not a A type. Yeah. I, I, you can't ask me what you can't. Don't ask me what I'm doing a <laughs> year from now. Don't even ask me what I'm doing 14 days from now.
0: I'm the same way. Like on my computer, everything's in downloads. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: see, <laughs> see what I'm saying? Like. My wife, though, she she will plan things out years from now. She'll be like, all right, honey. So, um, Thank you. <laughs> she would be like, uh, so 2024? I'm like, 2024? What? I'm just trying to figure out what we're doing next week. Right. So we're a good team in that sense. But uh, I realized, you know why that stresses me out? Because I can't control it. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that I had a fear of the unknown, which mm-hmm. is why I live so much in the moment. Yeah, And anybody that knows me, I'm going to be the most... Um, spontaneous most impactful person you can know in real time because if we decide to do something together or if I decide to do something for you or with you oh we're gonna get that done Mm -hmm. Um, but if you're asking me what I'm doing two years
0: from now nah ain't gonna work you mentioned the feeling of being alone and that's something that that I struggled with a lot of people struggle with but once you can be comfortable being with yourself loving yourself it is a very very powerful thing yeah how did you get to that point, and did you struggle with that alone feeling after the injuries, after your career ended? Like, Did that just tear you down at some points, and, and did it take time to get to that comfortability, being alone? I avoided
1: being alone. I avoided um, being in solitude because um, it was easy for me to you know, find a family to be around. Team was right there. So right. immediately, I got 55 brothers in the locker room. Um, and even when I wasn't playing, I was at the facility. You right. know, guys are walking by, I got the big cast on my leg. What's up, Nate, how you doing? What's up, bro, I'll be back, you know? <laughs> and then I go home and I have my family. Yeah. And then if I wanted to go out on the weekend, I can call my buddies. Mm-hmm. Um, so I avoided that for a while. But then when the season ended, I had to just sit and think and really address those questions. So now the reason I was able to sit and be alone was I had to get the root I had to get to the root of the things that gave me anxiety. So why don't you want to look too far in the future? Why are you concerned about money? Mm -hmm. Why are you concerned about being athletic? Why are you concerned about if you're going to be as good as you used to be? All these things derived from one thing, and that was what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Now, even though I was doing a thousand different things, I didn't know what I wanted. And maybe there was a fear that because I've been playing football since I was eight years old. This is like, if, if you relate it to, I wrote this poem once about um, the love of my life and this is before before I met my wife. Yeah. Um, And it was this love affair with football. And there was this fear that once this divorce with football happened, I would have so many different loves that I wouldn't find a true love again. Yeah. And I think once you get to the root of all these questions that we don't wanna answer, I think you find out, okay, what is the most pressing issue yeah and once you get to that the nucleus of that i think it's easier for us
0: to sit in solitude you mentioned the divorce from football i had uh brown's hall of famer now nfl hall of famer joe thomas on who's one of my first guests love joe legend man and he is and he's man he's ripped now like that dude whoo i know you can play tight end yeah exactly um but I went to his house in Wisconsin and we shot the episode and he really opened up about mental health and his career. And he pointed to this moment that after 10 years of of losing seasons, he lost to Tom Brady for the last time. He said, I lied to myself. I said, we're finally going to kick his ass and get this win. And he said, after the game, I just, for the first time ever, I broke down in front of my wife and cried the whole way home and realized that my career as a team was a failure Mm. and we were never going to win anything. Mm. And, the next day, he went for the first time and saw the Browns team psychiatrist, started going to therapy, and that psychiatrist, when he decided to retire, said, you have to treat this like a death in the family. Yeah. And so hearing you talk about the divorce, very common, and just that alone feeling, trying to figure it all out. Um, a lot of people that listen to The Mental Game know my story and that alone feeling and how bad it got for me losing three family members, the you know woman I thought I was gonna marry leaving me and I was suicidal, had to check myself. And thankfully, you know, yeah. figured things out, but I suffered with a lot of suicidal thoughts since I was 14, depression. When you had that alone feeling, did it ever get that low where, where suicide crossed your mind? No, because I've had
1: friends um, and family that were impacted by suicide. So for me, whenever I would have these moments of deep depression, um, I always thought about my family. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing I am thankful for, even though we didn't have these daily conversations about mental health, yeah, we leaned on each other so much that whenever it got bad, we wanted to be there for each other. Mm-hmm. Even in our own pity, like we wanted to still remain for our family members. And I'm talking about my immediate family. And then like that feeling like almost magnified times two when I married my wife and had kids. Right. So even if I if I feel like a sense of depression starting to kind of like roll into my life, I start thinking about, you know, my wife and my kids and, and, and that's that's a, a benefit for me. Yeah. You know, it's a blessing that I have something like that to anchor me. Mm-hmm. It's almost like it's almost like, you know, we can float away into this like space where we don't know what's going to happen next, but like the thing that always keeps me close to ground, is like this rope that's attached to like my family. And they're just always looking at me
0: and it's, and I, and I I love that feeling. You mentioned having family and or friends that have been affected by suicide. I I know we didn't talk about this before, so I don't want to make you pour out something that you don't want to, but I'm curious, was there a case of of losing a friend to suicide or, or a family member that was affected by it that really hit you hard and, 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 I don't know, maybe change your perspective on that or you were able to, it just hit you hard. Yeah,
1: you know, when I was younger, um, when people would talk about losing someone, um, it was so far removed from what I had experienced. Uh, I didn't really deal with death for like the first like 10 years of my life. Yeah. And then relatives started dying, different reasons, Mm -hmm. Um, both grandmothers, my uncle. Um, And then you get into the teens. Yeah. And you start to hear about, um, a friend of a friend that passed away, and the the more you dive into the story, you're like, wait, what happened? Right. You know, you think car accident or you know something random that happened, um, and then you hear the word suicide, and it's shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then you start to have these intimate conversations with your own friends about whether these thoughts have ever crept into your head. Um, so my teenage years, I think, were um, left the biggest imprint on me when it come, when it came to hearing about friends that have taken their lives. Yeah. Um, because at that point, I think I had to identify with like my own fragility mm-hmm. and and understanding, will it ever get to that point? Um, and I'm, I'm thankful that, that, you know, I've never had anybody like next to me yeah. um, that has taken their life. But I do know this, there has been um, friends and family members that have thought about it and even threatened it. Mm-hmm. So that that seems so personal that, you know, you wear it. You wear yeah. it because it's it's close to you. And it's
0: it's a ripple effect as well. Yeah. And it's crazy for me. Like I look back, I think I checked in last April to a mental health hospital in Cincinnati, and it's before then it was nights walking home drunk, like you know, downtown Cincinnati. Have you been there covering games or, yeah, or doing course. games there? Yeah. yeah city you can it's beautiful right downtown you can walk across the bridge and nights after drinking i'd be super drunk and walk home and, and sit there and think about jumping off or mm. laying down in the street outside the casino thinking about you know what if a car hits me um, mm. and then the moment i knew i needed to check in was i wrote a goodbye letter sober sobbing my eyes out at like 11 a.m mm. and just took this bottle of pills i had and prayed that i didn't wake up and when i woke up i like i just knew like i just called my mom i said hey i'm I'm going to die if I don't do something about this. Mm. So hearing like, you know, just the more you talk about suicide and the more you normalize it in the fact of bringing up those thoughts and how do we fix them? How do we address them? How do we go to therapy? What attention do you need? Right. It's such a um, big, big deal. And something I learned inside this mental health hospital, and it wasn't like, I don't mean this to diminish the mental health professionals, but it's not rocket science. Most of the stuff you learn, it's just the fact that when you and I were growing up in school, like you just didn't hear about it at all. It needs it. to be taught along with, with math, science, English, because like in, in this classroom and you had individual therapy sessions, a yeah. psychiatrist, but it's like 15 to 20 people from every race, background, gender age from 18 to 75, but everyone had one thing in common and it's that they were depressed, felt alone, thought about taking their own life mm. And so you hear other people's stories you can relate to them but one of the biggest things that i take away from that is those first two days were hell like i didn't i i made myself go there because i knew i wasn't going to be here if not yeah but i hated it and i was just so miserable i didn't participate in anything and one of the professors or professors like i'm in college one of the instructors therapist goes brandon why aren't you opening up and i said you know i've always just kind of been a bitch And so I just always been emotional and I'm afraid of like, you know, being like that. And she stopped me right there and she goes, that's the problem with mental health, but specifically men's mental health. It's true. Is you're, you're built up to not be a bitch or to be this manly man or just rub dirt on it and go. And so I bring that up because I I had that conversation with Ricky Williams and, Mm -hmm. and he said the same thing of like. Knowing that stigma for me, I didn't know that was a thing because like I said, I had been a bitch and I'm sorry for using that word so much, but I'd been that my entire life where I'd been super emotional, um, been single a lot and had some bad breakups and just like, it was always, everything was super emotional to me, but men's mental health, how have you seen that stigma, you know, break, but still work we need to do to have men feel comfortable talking about mental health more?
1: I feel like. We're still trying to break through on how to communicate that properly. Um, Listen, there's certain things that we attach to genders. Mm -hmm. Um, Certain stereotypes don't fit, others do. I feel like the way women communicate to each other, um, it could be something we poke fun at, but it is also a strength that they have. Right. Um, The way that women communicate to us um, and, and, Please forgive me if I'm being dismissive um, to any gender roles. I'm just trying to make it relatable to my life. Um, when I would talk to my wife, I wouldn't open up, and I didn't. I didn't learn that specifically. Like it wasn't taught to me. Yeah, it was a learned behavior from my father. He didn't open up a lot. Mm-hmm. He was a guy showed up, went to work, opened up a little bit. Hey, son, I love you. I'm proud of you. You know, great great job in school, great job on the field, Yeah, very simple man. Uh, I didn't see too many intimate conversations between him and my mom. So I didn't realize that I was downloading all this information and as Mm -hmm. I got older, I became that same type of man. Right, And I would just bottle up all these things, even up until my late 30s, where I became a professional outside of sports and I'm juggling five different jobs, still being a coach and full-time husband and father and I am stressed as hell. Yeah. But all the while, I'm putting on this face that I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And then I would come home and not have a place that I felt um, was open for me to talk about it. And it wasn't to blame my wife. It was that I was restricting myself Mm -hmm. from doing that. All right, forget about my relationship for a second. Let's talk about within my circle of friends. Yeah. We'd get together and we'd small talk ourselves to death. Right, up so with ball, man? How's the weather? It was nice yeah, who shoes. Won, who it won this game? Tomorrow. Where are you going? Like, to you want to go like kick that. it? Yeah. You know, where we going on the boys trip? Um, and then realizing like, we haven't had any conversations that are worth saving our lives. Yeah. And as we started to mature, now we do. We can sit back, put the TV on mute, and look each other in the eyes, um, and talk about things that matter. Mm-hmm. Which is why when people see me on TV, um, I, I always use words that are affectionate. I say, I appreciate you a lot because I truly do appreciate people. I tell men that I love them yeah. because we don't hear that often. Mm-hmm. I tell men that I'm proud of them because we don't hear that often, especially as we become adults. You know, there was this bravado that we had that, you know, the male gender was only supposed to be complimented by a father figure. No, you can be compl- complimented by anybody in your life. But sometimes it means even more when your peer, another guy that looks just like you, that's been through the same things, can look at eyes and say, hey, man, I love you. I'm proud of you. Mm -hmm. If you need anything, holler at me. You got my number, man. Call me anytime. Hey, Let's get up and grab some drinks. Or when you see somebody say, say, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? That's cool. But that's in passing. It's very surface. Right. But if you go beneath the surface and you look somebody in the eyes, somebody that you're close to or somebody that you know, somebody you're cool with, hey, what's up? Hey, how you doing? Right. You all right? Yeah. It's completely different. Um, so yeah, I feel like you know this this fight for mental health is one thing. I'm a, a, a huge proponent of men just being more emotionally available and communicating that, even if it is outside of your comfort zone.
0: I had this same conversation uh, with Colts linebacker Shaquille Leonard, yeah. and we're talking about men's mental health, but we also brought in how there's a huge stigma around Black men's mental health and opening up. No doubt because no of, of the culture or the way you were raised. And just like we said, put your head down, work, or you, know, you don't see you know, that yeah. affection from your dad talking about more than just, I'm proud of you, I love you. You don't hear his backstory, his mental health story. How have you like dove into that and, and living as a black athlete and now someone that has a platform and is able to talk to people in the masses, but also have that human to human connection. How have you seen that personally throughout your life?
1: Yeah, you know, it's um, it's it's generational. There's a lot of things that we have all right. downloaded, um, and there are these uh, generational curses mm-hmm. that we don't even know um, we have on us. Yeah. And we just put it in our pockets, put it in our purses, put it in our backpacks, and we walk with it the rest of our lives. But we have to unpack these things. Um, wh- what I do is I use my platform to be that emotionally available man. I have Brandon Marshall on our show who's also a yeah, huge advocate of, of men dealing with their mental health. Um, he was on our show and at the end of the segment, you know, I, I just looked at him sincerely and I said, yo, I'm proud of you, man. I love everything you're doing. He said, oh, man, come on, nigga. I'm proud of you, too. And I was like, all right, man. You know, thanks for joining me. I love you, man. And he looked at me and he said, I love you. And it wasn't one of those goofy kind of like, I love you, man, like, yeah. you know, that we do or that drunk, hey, I love you, <laughs> my guy. It, it was it was on camera in front of the world, two black men sitting sitting there. Um, in an intimate setting, having an intimate conversation at the very end of it showing appreciation for each other, looking each other in our eyes and saying, I love you. And I think that right there sends a large message to the black community.
0: I I do too, and I remember watching um, that on CBS mornings. In the NFL, have you seen it change? You've had a lot of players. um, I don't think you couldn't talk about it as much when you were playing, when it came to mental health, depression, suicide. But, you know, I think of guys like DJ Shark, who I covered – at LSU when I was reporting on, on their team. Um, Hayden Hurst with the Bengals. Now he's with the Panthers, I think. But just these different guys, Solomon Thomas, who I think you've talked to before. Hmm. How have you seen mental health in the NFL, how that views changed?
1: I think the uh, NFL has done a great job of creating programs and offering resources on multiple levels um, you know, before they would outsource. Right. Now they have things in-house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also the conversation, you know, in the locker room has changed before yeah. it was stigmatized. So this taboo um, would restrict guys from opening up. Yeah. Now you can have a locker room full of 65 dudes and in certain pockets of the locker room, guys will be having real conversations mm-hmm. about marriage relationships with their mothers, fathers, fathers that are there, fathers that aren't with their kids. What, they're doing with their finances, their fears about stepping into the unknown of their post careers. Right. like That's happening now. Yeah. It, it isn't what was depicted in movies You know, decades ago. Mm-hmm. The locker room atmosphere has changed and the NFL is promoting that, which helps teams and it helps players on a very individual basis.
0: Yeah. And I felt that a little bit, not, how I'm not saying an NFL player, but when I went through my stuff, I had a few of the Bengals players, Coach Taylor, reach out to me and just like yeah
1: he's a great dude man shout out to coach taylor yeah
0: he's awesome and i'm happy for him and joe burrow and everything they're doing let's get to some uh some fun questions football your uh your post football career too um doing tv i mean you're a natural thank you i appreciate that and it's it's very fun to watch um you can tell you love doing it yeah whether it's you know nfl or the morning show what's been your favorite part of that that transition and living out that dream
1: it's a blessing Uh, you know there's guys that struggle with their second career. So for me to have a few different options and then now um, be able to wake up and sit next to Gail King and Tony DeCopo, it's mm-hmm. it's it's a dream come true. You know, we are witnesses to history on a daily basis right. and we're able to we're able to, you know, give that to the viewer um, day by day. And and I I would say say this now and I've said it before, Working for CBS Mornings is the most fulfilling job I've ever had. Uh, The NFL might be the most exciting, Mm -hmm. most thrilling, uh, most adrenaline filled job I've ever had, but working on CBS Mornings, um, it's a beautiful thing. You know, I went from my entire career chasing championship trophies, going in the NFL, you know, chasing individual accolades based on my athleticism, to now winning Emmys based on my intelligence. Mm -hmm. You know, never winning, similar to uh, Joe Thomas. Was something that left a void in me after my career. Yeah. Um, and I I so desperately wanted that Lombardi trophy. And here I am now, um, almost a decade removed from the game, and I'm chasing my fifth Emmy. So Congrats, um, thank awesome. you. I appreciate that. And and that's and it and it it puts it in perspective that, you know, for a long time I was chasing these man-made trophies. Right. Until I woke up and realized that. Men make other trophies. Yeah. Um, and if you're good at something else, you can go earn those trophies too. Um, and then once you get those trophies, realizing they're just trophy trophies for the shelf. Right. The trophy for your spirit is something that nobody can
0: give you. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I do. And it's powerful when you get to do impactful things. You've done a lot of impactful stories, interviews, but I think it was about a month ago is when it aired. I'm not sure exactly when you shot it, but getting to sit down with President Obama. Yeah. And have that yeah. conversation about really, really important things. Yeah. Also, it's President Obama. I it's, mean, is that a moment you had to pinch yourself?
1: Of course, of <laughs> course. When I got word that uh, Obama and his team wanted me to sit down, like I was thrilled, and I was, you know, preparing like crazy, yeah, uh, in, in hopes that it would just turn out good, um, and it did. You know, he opened up about the issues that are, we are dealing with, dealing with right now um, in society. Um, he touched on. Um, what's going on with the mass shootings, mm-hmm. which seems like are happening too frequently. Um, and then he even opened up about his relationship yeah. with um, you know, former First Lady Michelle Obama. That, that right there for me um, was the best part because I knew he would sit down and as the former president of the United States, he would touch on the same topics that we were touching on on a daily basis on yeah. the show. Um, but for him to open up in a very intimate way about his marriage and also being a father, like that's what made it really special.
0: Yeah, no, that's gotta be like I don't know. Is that the is that the best interview you've done just because of who it is and getting yeah. to open up? I oh, mean it's for crazy. sure
1: For sure. You know, I, he, he's of course top of the list. It's a bucket list interview. Right. Um I loved sitting down with Michael J. Fox. Barry Gordy was one. Bill mm-hmm. Russell before he passed away. Yeah. Um the list really does go on, man. I I'm I'm thankful. And that's why this job is so fulfilling. Because yeah. As much as um, we hold up the journalistic integrity that CBS is known for, I'm also a fan of these people. Mm-hmm. And I try to blend those two things when I'm sitting down with them.
0: Right, and, and you do the same thing on NFL Today. I mean, you wanna, be, you wanna play the game as long as you can, enjoy it, yep. but career does come to an end and you gotta have a long run and still now doing it of being an M- NFL commentator what what has that been like working with the guys at CBS and getting to do that every Sunday?
1: Yeah, man. JB he runs the show. He's the host, and then you have Bill, Coach Cowra, yeah. and then Phil and Boom. You know, two quarterbacks that were legends in their time and still are, but they go at it like brothers. <laughs> um, I love it because they show up every day ready to rock and roll. They are the most prepared dudes ever. So for me, when I show up, I have to be on my game, right? Um, and I tell them all the time. You know, some sometimes I. I would get a pat on the back for how good I am on TV but I always deflect it to the people I work with because
0: iron sharpens iron correct and you um you know your career it's been super fun getting to do football TV um, what do you want your your biggest impact to be um, I want
1: my footprints to be so big that other people can walk in them um, I want to be able to open up doors um, I want people to know me, not only as an athlete, but someone that transitioned into media um, and was just as much of a team player in that space yeah. as he was in football. Um, and then a, a guy that in whatever community he was in, he was 10 toes down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if I pass away and at my funeral, people talk about how good of a football player I was, and that's the only thing they say, um, that's not a life fulfilled. I'd rather that be one of the last things they talk about. Oh, and he, he used football. to play ball. Um, but before that, a long list of things, impactful things, changes I've helped create, people that I've I've helped along the way. Like that's that's a life worth living.
0: Yeah, amen. I love that. Mm-hmm. Last thing I'm going to ask you is um, usually I ask whatever profession people are in, what advice they would give to somebody that has those NFL dreams. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm going to ask a two-parter here if I can, which is, you can answer that, giving advice to kids that want to make it to the league. But also, I think, advice to take care of your mental health because this is something you're super passionate about. Um, so let's start with the mental health. What advice do you give anyone watching, listening, to take better care of themselves? Um, I would say
1: look at how your clock works. And by that, like, if you look I'm – a, I'm a watch guy. If you look at really well-made – handmade watches Mm -hmm. the workings of it are fascinating um and it's very difficult to understand but every little piece works together yeah Um, but you have to pour through it with a fine tooth comb in order to understand how it works we have to do that with ourselves Mm -hmm. like understand how you work yeah and and that's what makes you tick what makes you happy what makes you sad Um, and dig deep like don't be afraid to shed a tear or two dig deep Mm -hmm. and if you do that you might be able to avoid some of the things that cause you to fall into certain spaces. Um, But more importantly, you will be leaning into other spaces that uplifts you, that makes you smile, that keeps you above the clouds. Um, So just learn yourself. Um, And then advice in any sport, in any walk of life, use the vehicle, let's just take football, use the vehicle for as long as you can use it. And then once you're done, get off at that, mm-hmm. stop. Um, you know, people might think, well, I'm not tall. I'm not fast. I can't play a sport. Doesn't matter if you love football, keep playing as long as you can. And if you don't make your high school team, go to college and work as a trainer or GA, work as a yeah. uh, GA. Yeah. And and then you can get to the NFL and work in the front office. Like I tell kids all the time, one kid came up to me um, when I was coaching a couple of years ago. He said, man, look at me, man, I'm not gonna play. I'm not gonna play here. Why would I even attempt to play in college? I just, I'm i going to give up on it. I mean, my dad wants me to go into finance. And I hate finance. And I was like, well, why don't you stay close to football? And when you go to college, work for the team in some capacity. Mm-hmm. You love the game, right? He's like, I love it more than anything in the world. It's like, well, if you think I'm cool, the football player, you should meet the dude that's writing my check. Yeah. And that guy didn't play football. Most of these GMs didn't play at a high level. Mm -hmm. So um, forget about the superstars that you love. Yeah. When we walk into the facility, when football players walk onto the football field, the superstar is the one with the most money. And that guy wasn't the star receiver on his high school team. Right. He was the smartest dude that stayed around the game the longest and ended up buying the team. Mm -hmm. And now he's a billionaire. And you can do that if you want to own a team, be a GM, be a head coach, work in any capacity in sports. So when a teacher says, oh, give up on the game, you're not athletic enough, that teacher's a joke because yep. you should stay close to the game as long as you can, and it will reward you in the end.
0: Well, Nate, this has been super powerful between you know NFL talk, mental health, depression, like your advice, great. And it's been nice getting to know you. Thank you so much, of man. Of course, I appreciate man. I appreciate it. you having me on. Yeah, it's been awesome. We'll see everybody right back here next week on The Mental Game. And as you just heard, that was an amazing conversation with Nate. I can't thank him enough for giving me some of his time to talk about mental health, his career, and his personal battle with depression. Once again, you can catch him every weekday morning on CBS Mornings, where he's a co-host every single day. It's an amazing show. And as you heard, Nate has an amazing story. Coming up next week, we have another surprise guest here on The Mental Game. But we are staying on the NFL theme as we are now just a couple weeks away from training camp kicking off. And I'll give you one hint, and it's a big one. This next guest is one of who I believe is the two biggest NFL reporters. So once again, one of the two biggest NFL reporters next week, right back here on The Mental Game.